You are listening to Fanta Tracks. Because of the following special program, Wonder Woman and the Incredible Hulk will not be presented this evening. Star Wars news in a single file. This is Making Tracks. Here are your hosts, Mark Newbold and Mark Lowcaster. That's not true. That's impossible. You're listening to Making Tracks and a very special episode where we catch up with animation supervisor Hal Hickel from ILM. We talk about his Star Wars career, starting with The Phantom Menace all the way through to The Mandalorian. So we'll get straight into it, sit back and enjoy our conversation with Hal Hickel. When you went from Pixar to ILM, your first big project was Lost World, which was a huge project. Even compared to Jurassic, it was a, it was a huge project four years on. And then you dive straight into Phantom Menace, first Star Wars film for, what, 16 years as it was at the time. How was ILM set at that point? Was was there a huge... I mean, we saw Disney Gallery with you guys talking around the table with Favreau talking about it, you know. Yeah. Was there that huge sense of excitement that Star Wars is back in town and we're working on it? Oh, yeah. That's why I left Pixar to go to ILM. I'd always wanted to work at ILM. It had been a goal, for, you know, since childhood, really. But... Pixar was great. I loved it there. Toy Story was a hit. It was a great Pixar was a great place to be. So it wasn't a slam dunk that. And you have to understand, physically, Pixar and ILM were a 10 minute drive apart. So they were quite near each other. So I was finally living, you know, near this place that I'd always wanted to work. But I was at another company that, you know, Pixar, which was amazing. But what, you know, made me think, all right, I've got to try it. I've got to try and get it on at ILM if I can was a they were making sequel to Jurassic and B, they were getting ready to make more Star Wars films, which is already known at that point and been announced. So if I'm ever going to do it, I've got to try it now. And I had a reel of shots from Toy Story on my on my demo reel then. So I thought, you know, the timing is right. But so the excitement, I think, throughout the whole company was similar to, to mine, you know, which was like, I, you know, I can't wait to work with George on a Star Wars movie. I never thought I'd be able to do that. And now, you know, here it is. It's going to happen. And so the excitement was palpable. It was also quite daunting, though, because George was talking about a movie that was going to have over a thousand visual effect shots nowadays or maybe close to 2000. Yeah, I forget two, what yeah, number yeah. one. Yeah, two. And that was unheard of. I mean, at that point, 1995, 1996, a really big visual effects movie, you know, 500 shots was still considered a massive visual effects movie. I mean, when you consider Jurassic Park, which was, had only been four years before, only had about, I think, fewer than 50 dig- digital dinosaur shots yeah. in it. And that was a massive undertaking then. So, you know, you go four years later and now people are making films with hundreds of, of visual effect shots. And that's a giant, massive, complicated, difficult project. And now George wants to make a film with thousands of visual <laughs> effects, digital visual effect shots. So that was, you know, everyone was... Uh, really wondering how that was going to work out. Yeah. But, you know, fortunately, folks like John Knoll, John is great at tackling big, intractable, what seem like intractable problems. He's very good at analyzing and breaking down the problems into smaller problems, small enough that you begin to understand how to move forward. He's super good at that. 
amongst a lot of other things. That's one of the reasons I've always really enjoyed working with John on big, complicated, difficult projects like the Pirates films. We had lots of different problems to solve, and John's just very good at organizing and figuring out how to break down those problems into smaller problems and to delegate to the right people and all that. So, yes, the excitement on, on Phantom Menace was, was palpable when I got there. Like, everybody was just completely chomping at the bit to make another Star Wars movie for George. What was your big involvement on Phantom? I came on as an animator. So initially I was doing things like I did a little bit of exploratory animation on the pit droids. And then Rob Coleman, the, the animation director on the three prequels, he put me on some shots of Watto. So when he's saying the, the, the little bit about I'm a Toydarian, mind tricks don't work. What do you think? Yeah. You're some kind of Jedi. I'm a Toydarian. Mind tricks don't work on me. I, I did those shots. And um, although I think I believe Linda Bell was the lead on Watto. Anyways, and then George, he knew I liked robots, so he gave me the droidicas, the destroyer yeah. droids that roll up in a ball. And so I did the animation of those guys uh, rolling in and unfolding. I did some stampede creatures in the stampede where they first meet Jar Jar. And then Rob gave me a bump up to be a character lead for Boss Nass, the king of the Gungans. So I did a bunch of shots and I had a little group of animators helping me with all the boss nass shots and i, I kind of did some key shots up front figured out his mannerisms and stuff and um, then we all just worked together on all the shots of him i think that's mainly it i don't i can't remember doing any other i didn't do any pod race stuff or uh, anyways i think those were my main yeah. goals so that was you know the project where i moved from animator up to lead animator and but th those were my main duties on phantom menace <laughs> Moving on to episode two, then, given mm -hmm. that you, you probably started on episode two around about 2000, there or thereabouts, it felt like a huge, I mean, just visually, the scope of that film, the depth of the film, what's going on felt immense. So for you guys, again, it, it always felt to me like the one film where you really were chasing, chasing, chasing to stay with it because there was so much going on in the plot, you know, and so much to convey yep. on the screen. How was it with, with Attack of the Clones? Was it that kind of film that you were you really just had to go for it full bore? Yes. It was Rob, who who, had, who was the anim, anim director on the three films. Yeah. He, in fact, he decided that he was going to need some help on Attack of the Clones. <laughs> After Phantom Menace, I got my first chance to be in Anim Soup, which was on AI. And so I, I finished that. Clones was already underway, and Rob asked me to come on to Clones as – as kind of an undersuit. He would still be the animation director, and then there would be me and uh, Chris Armstrong were his two, his two anim soups. So he would just kind of divvy up the show and give us a sequence and say, all right, take this and get it done. Yeah. And so I came in, you know, a, a little bit midstream in a way. They, the film was already going. Uh, but one of the first things Rob handed me was um, this droid factory thing, which, wow. <laughs> which had some pretty goofy gags in it and stuff. You know, which, <laughs> that for me is the, was the quintessential sort of like, uh, I don't, I'm not sure I, <laughs> you know, like there were, there were ideas in there, you know, like the, the whole gag with C-3PO get, getting his head knocked off from a place with a droid head and stuff. I thought it was a bit silly, but you know, that's that thing where you're like, even if this isn't exactly your, you know, what you would do with yeah. this moment, you've got to bring your skills to bear. And I was still yeah. pretty green. Now. I mean, I look at some of that work now and think, Ooh, I should have done this or I would have advised that. But still, <laughs> great experience. And, and the really fun part and difficult part of that sequence was the whole assembly line machines that Padme runs through because George was keen 
for them to make a kind of sense. He didn't care overly about it. Maybe we cared about it more than he did, actually. But yeah. we were at least keen that they'd be doing something. And what they were doing was stamping out the breastplates for the super battle droids. So if you actually watch carefully across the sequence, it starts with just a, a raw ingot and it gradually gets shaped and stamped and drilled and grinded until it's this recognizable chess piece for the super battle droid as it moves down the assembly line. And then, you know, syncing up <laughs> the, the blues, the green screen plates of that were just insane. You'd had poor Natalie Portman running around on these green uh, treadmills, ducking and jumping under things. It was nuts. It was absolutely nuts. And we had to kind of make sense of it and design machines or, you know, that would serve that action. Well, Doug Chang designed the scenes, just the, the machines, but we had to, we had to bring his designs together with <laughs> what, what was in the place to kind of actually make a, a sort of sense out of it. And that was actually really fun. It was a super difficult sequence though, because it was changing all the time. It had been added quite late in the process. And um, so all the different parts of it, the smelting pots that carried around on those winches above, and there's action in and out of those and all over these conveyor belts. And with these flying Geonosians that pop in with their sonic weapons or whatever they are. And um, it was crazy. And plus, and Billy Brooks, animated uh the <laughs> flying r2d2 it's another idea that some of us quite we're like is it really a good idea <laughs> to say, say that r2d2 can fly but you know i love george i mean that's the thing even when there there was stuff that i'd be like i'd kind of shrug and think well I, that might not have been my choice i always loved working for george i still admire him massively and i really enjoyed working for him on that film hello i'm ahmed best and you're listening to Tracks. Obviously, you did the two prequel movies. You didn't do Star Wars again until Rogue One. Again, hugely popular film. People adore that movie, increasingly so as the years go by. What was your involvement in Rogue One? I was the animation supervisor. It was my maybe my seventh film together with John Knoll. So, you know, any creatures or, or droids, certainly, that are, that are CG. And then also uh, spaceships and things, things that, that, that move around in that way. So super fun. I mean, I feel like I've gotten really quite lucky in recent years to work on Rogue One and now Mandalorian. They're both firmly rooted in the <clears throat> timeline of the original trilogy. And so for me, they've just been hugely fun to work on. I mean, the sequel films are great. I, I've really enjoyed watching each of those as they came out, but I've really had almost nothing to do with them. So I've been able to enjoy them just as a, an audience member, really. But I feel tremendously lucky to have been, been involved with Rogue. And Rogue... As well, because it was John's um, idea. He pitched the idea to Kathy for Rogue One. John Knoll did. And so, you know, it's like, hey, one of our own, you know. And I love the whole idea of it. And, and uh, working with Gareth was awesome. He's great. Because there are a lot of components of what makes an experience working on a film, good or bad. You know, you've got the, the actual experience of making it and what the people were like that you worked with and those relationships and then the work itself, whether how connected to it you feel. And, and then of course the, the response after the fact and rogue was one of those, you know, awesome projects where I couldn't have asked for a better crew. It was an amazing group of people to work with. I loved the project itself and everything that was in it. I really enjoyed working with Gareth and then, you know, the film had, a, had a great reception afterwards. So in every way it was kind of a home run for me. I, re I really loved it. We had K2SO to do. We had um, certainly a big space battle at the end. Odd little creatures here and there. Like the sequel films, though, there was a real desire to do things 
practically wherever possible, which we I applaud. I think that's the way to go and yeah. let us do do the rest. Um, so that was great. Neil Scanlon's group did amazing creature work on it as always, and we got to do you know you know things like K2SO and. That was super fun. It was to contribute a new or, you know, participate in contributing a new droid to the Star Wars canon is amazing. And Alan Tudyk is super funny and he was great and perfect for the role. And, you know, just thought that whole experience was really fun. Plus doing a character that's really tall, but actually having him on set doing yeah. the, the character. So he's up on these stilts was really wacky sort of approach that was great. It was the right approach, but it was, you know, kind of nutty to put an actor up on these <laughs> stilts. Alan was great with it. So. Yeah, it was a great project. Hi, this is Gareth Edwards, director of the best standalone Star Wars film since Caravan of Courage, called Rogue One. You're listening to Panther Tracks. Enjoy. It strikes me that ILM as a company were there taking optical effects to the to the nth degree as they did up until the digital era starts, and then they finesse that. And now you come onto the Mandalorian with the whole stagecraft technology, which I guess for you guys is another level of of working things out. Given the limited knowledge that we have of what it is and how it works, and we're seeing it on Disney Gallery right now, because it seems to be shot in the room. It goes back to you saying about rear screen projection earlier, and it feels like the modern version of rear screen projection in that it's there in the room. So how does ILM do their work off the back of that? I think the fundamental thing for the visual effect artist that changes with using what the volume, we call the volume, yeah. is that a lot of the environment work has to be created ahead of shooting. Generally, we're doing that all in post-production where the actors have been shot on green or blue screens and then we're adding in some environment, the fantastical alien planet, whatever yeah. environment. But now those things have to be designed and agreed upon and created ahead of shooting so that they can be displayed on the, the walls of the, the volume. So that's a big change. That's a, it moves a lot of creative decisions up front. I mean, honestly, it's not a lot different than regular live action filmmaking in the sense that with regular live action, you have to decide what the set looks like in time to get it built in time to, you know, shoot your actors on it. But there with visual effects, people are kind of used to deferring a lot of creative ideas until post. And now a big chunk of those decisions have to be made up front, which I think is a good thing and committed to. For my part of it, though, as, you know, animation supervisor, where I'm dealing with, you know, creatures and things, my work is largely the same as it's been for feature films or, or, or films before this, the volume was created in the sense that we're starting to do a little bit of it now, but we really haven't used it to display creatures. So in other words, there aren't creatures I have to get built and animated and performing ahead of the live action shooting so that they can be part of the imagery that's, that's on the, the volume walls. Yeah. I'm still largely creating, you know, whether it's IG 11 or the blurgs or, or what have you creating those in post-production well after shooting's finished. That said, I'm looking forward to using the volume for some interesting creature things like, um, and this is not anything that's on the books for me or anything, but just we've been talking about it at work, like an interesting uh, version of that might be that in a nearby motion capture stage or maybe right next to the volume on a motion capture stage, you might have an, a motion capture actor that is driving in real time some 15-foot tall creature. Yeah that's being rendered live and put onto the volume. So the actors on the volume can see that that 15 foot tall creature moving opposite them and, and they can follow it with their eyes and watch it as it moves. That to me is, is kind of an exciting thing. Cause that's always been, that's a, that's a, an example of something that's always been a little tough to get right where you've got a big 
a giant or a kaiju or a even just a you know ten or fifteen foot tall creature yeah. that's interacting with a live actor in an environment. You know, usually you've got somebody on set with a pole with a tennis ball at the top of it that you're telling <laughs> them to look at, and now they would actually be able to see this creature and see it performing because the motion capture performer can be not just creating a moving marker for them to look at, but actually performing something for them to react to. And so that's exciting. I'm, I look forward to that kind of thing, but that hasn't been part of my experience with the volume so far. So far, uh, you know, I've seen it creating environments for us. The roost environment last year and that sort of floating chop shop hangout that Mando visits in the heist episode. Yeah. We did have some digital extras in the background of those loads of those environments where, you know, way in the background, there'd be some figure back there welding or walking along a catwalk or something. So that's as close as I've gotten so far to creating uh, a sort of digital character animation in on the volume. But it, it's coming. I'm sure we'll be doing doing some of that soon. I, I spoke to Brian Herring recently and talking about Hob operating BB-8 and all the technological advances that him and, and Scanlon and that team had made that made operating it better. And he was very impressed with all the, the advances in that respect. Ultimately, it all came down to anything that makes the performance more real and in the moment and feel organic and natural. It strikes me what you've sort of said about the possibilities of stagecraft and what ILM are doing in concert with it will only make the performances more feel more organic and real. Yeah. I mean, and that's one of the big, there are a bunch of advantages to, to shooting on the volume. And of course it's not suitable for everything. There's always going to be a need to go out to real locations and all that kind of thing. Yeah. But for situations where there is not a real location, um, like a, an alien planet, for instance, it's great to immerse the actors and give them something to react to and bounce off of, both in terms of their acting, but also in terms of uh, visually what you get on screen. Because the remember, they're, they're completely surrounded by this giant LED screen, and so it's lighting them. And that's the other thing that's always been tricky to get right with green screen and blue screen shoots is lighting the actors in a way that you hope will match them well into the background you're going to create later. And, and, you know, that there are very good and many good skilled examples of that where people don't even know they're looking at a visual effect. But then, you know, we all know that there are examples where something looks a little bit off and they look a little bit pasted into the scene. And if you're shooting them on the volume, they're essentially being lit by the volume. So if there's a blue sky on the volume above them, you're getting that kind of bluish skylight. If the you know terrain around them is kind of a reddish clay, then you're going to get color from that. And that really is one of the things that makes it look very real, not like a composite. <laughs> and especially when you get a character like the Mandalorian who's wearing shiny armor yeah. the whole time. You, the reflections you get are just incredibly realistic. So there's both of those advantages. You get more realism out of their performance. Their reaction to it is real. And then you get uh, also just a much more realistic look. Um, but again, I, I certainly don't want to see everything for the end of time shot that way. I, I like going on locations and finding real places. And that's a, that's always going to be a part of filmmaking, too. But the volume has really solved a lot of problems, for us, particularly when you consider that we're trying to create a TV show and the yeah. The requirements of that, you know, it's, that's always been daunting for a show like Star Wars, for, for a property like Star Wars to try and do a live action TV series is, is, is always been daunting because of the crazy locations you need to, to hit that, that can't be filmed just at a normal earthbound location and that sort of thing. 
is it i mean it's obviously it's a new technology and 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 you're still learning it and everybody's sort of getting used to it being in in their wheelhouse now and we look back a few years to when everybody was talking about a, a live action star wars tv series when george was still running the company and yeah. how far down the line that may or may not have got the grady ranch and all that stuff that was being talked about presumably at that point it wasn't feasible financially technologically but now it is does it feel like completely the sky's the limit yeah kind of i mean when i look <laughs> when i look at the stuff we're doing and and I, and you know i i know you know i can't talk about what it is but when i look at the stuff we're doing in season 2 versus season 1 i'm pretty amazed yeah. and it's just going to you know we're just going to keep refining it and and figuring out new ways to use it and there's been a lot of cool things about it you know the volume but then also kind of going in the other direction where we we used some really old school techniques like uh, motion control and miniatures on, on the show, which was really fun to do with the razor crest. Yeah. I'm Anthony Daniels and you are listening to Fantha tracks. Well done. You obviously want it to feel like we're still at the back end of the OT, but give it a new flavor. What's the sort of mindset on how the look all comes together? In terms of the look, I'd say the concerns are pretty similar to rogue in that we're mindful of the, proximity to the original trilogy um we of course have doug chang and the lucasfilm art department you know designing things and and keeping us in the right zone and then of course we have folks like dave filoni who have an, a font of knowledge about the um, original trilogy and a real strong connection to george to also keep us on track about a lot of things but i think the thing that makes mandalorian different is john favreau's sensibility about star wars and what he appreciates and likes to see him for instance one of the things he really enjoys doing is taking a character that might have gotten a few seconds of screen time in the original trilogy like ig88 and creating a new character ig11 but is that same model of droid or ugnaughts also seen briefly in empire strikes back now we've got quill who's front and center a main character in season one so he that's something he enjoys doing is sort of raising uh things out of a not obscurity exactly, because certainly for serious fans of the films, they're familiar with all these things. But maybe for casual fans of the series, he's raising them from obscurity and certainly taking underdeveloped or underused characters and creatures and, and things and bringing them and putting them front and center. So that's super fun. And it gives you a way to be both familiar and new at the same time. And and then, of course, you know, we're creating brand new characters as well and new stories and seeing new corners of the galaxy, which is which is always fun. It's very much why I, I loved working on Rogue One. It was I had one foot firmly rooted in original trilogy costumes and places and vehicles and creatures. But and then at the same time, there were lots of things in it that were very fresh, not the least of which, which was, uh, you know, Gareth's directing style and Greg Fraser's uh, cinematography, which were very unoriginal trilogy in, in a lot of ways. To me, that's a an exciting playground to be in where you, you kind of get the best of both worlds of, of doing, you know, your favorite old nostalgic things, but um, also getting to break new ground and, and do something fresh. So super fun. So likewise with Mandalorian, you know, and the music as well. I think it was a very brave choice not to uh, in, in Mandalorian, not to have music that, you know, frankly sounds like John Williams music, which we all of course love and identify strongly with the original trilogy so i think it was quite a brave choice to decide to make that aspect of this something entirely its own and i think it's been really successful i love that that's a really good point because like you say the music is so i mean now we're the music's in our head 
it couldn't feel and be more Star Wars. So when you're doing the work that you guys do, you want to tell brand new stories, but those touchstones of familiarity are going to bring the casual viewer in. They're going to make people like me pop because it's a bit joyed. Oh, we're in Docker Bay 35 as it was instead of 94, but you know, we're on Tatooine and all the cool things that we see seems to work for everybody. And we have, as you'd imagine, constant conversations about, you know, is this Star Wars? And, And that can come up around anything. Like if there's a new weapon and the way the weapon's blaster color looks or, or, you know, or what it does, we're constantly talking about, you know, is this, does this feel Star Wars? Does this seem like a Star Wars thing? Because to be sure, there are things that feel or, or even just um, shot design, for instance, especially when we're talking about um, spaceships and things. There's definitely a, an aesthetic to the shot design in original trilogy that is different from, for instance, Star Trek. Yeah. Um, Star Trek has it has a completely different aesthetic that is very much its own. And it can sometimes be a little hard to know which one you've tapped into until everyone starts talking about it. And then usually someone is able to put their finger on it and say, you know what, I'll tell you why this is feeling a little off. It's because of, you know, this, that and the other. And we we have these conversations endlessly about pretty much everything (laughs) on the show. Yeah. Even dialogue, uh, you know, is thought of through that lens quite frequently. It's a tricky thing to define, isn't it? Because as a, as a casual viewer, you know when it doesn't quite feel right. You guys, you can your hair's going in the back of your neck when you suddenly think that doesn't quite feel right. We did a, a little um, exercise on on Rogue One where we it was not really part of Rogue One, but it was associated with the fact that we were working on you know numerous new Star Wars projects at the time. So Dennis Smirin and a few others kind of spearheaded a little project where they took shots from the original trilogy, all three films. For instance, if it was a Star Destroyer shot from Empire Strikes Back, they'd take that shot and then they'd add a second Star Destroyer using our the asset that we built for Rogue One and do everything they could to match the look and lighting and everything to the practical one, the miniature one that was in the shot already. Not as a way to sort of fool anyone. It was more just as, as a way to learn like, OK, what is it about the contrast ratio, where the key lights coming from, how, you know, basically all the little details that make the original shot feel the way it does. And then try to tease out what things to keep and what things to leave behind in order to sort of modernize the effects. And it was really useful. We did a shot from the Hoff battle where we took one of our AT-ATs from Rogue. We painted it up to look like the Hoff ATST and, and I mean ATAT and um we had ATSTs in in Mandalorian so and it's in the back of my brain so it keeps jumping in there and trying to trying to make me say it <laughs> um, but so we put this uh, second ATAT in there painted the same and we even animated it without motion blur and uh, in a way to look like the stop motion animation from Empire again it was really useful I mean you know the this slightly staccato feel of the stop motion animation is not something we'd emulate now. Um, because it's it's a it's an artifact. All all visual effects have artifacts of one kind or another. Some are good, some are bad. In terms of realistic visual effects, the slightly staccato feel of stop motion was not a good artifact in terms of realistic visual effects. On the other hand, when you're making something like an animated feature using stop motion, it's part of the magic because you you've got kind of two threads tickling your brain. One is telling you that these are little puppets that were handmade and um, you can kind of sense that. And then the other message is that they're alive and you believe in the characters if the, if the film is well made. And that's part of the magic of this kind of surreal dreamlike magic of stop motion. But in the context of 
visual effects, it's um, it's not so desirable. And so, you know, that's an example where, okay, well, we know what we're not going to carry forward as we do this, but let's look at all the other things that make it feel sort of physical and real and appealing to, to folks and in a way that CG sometimes doesn't. So those exercises were super useful, useful. And then, you know, and then on Mandalorian, of course, we actually went back and built a miniature version of the Razor Crest yeah. and, and sort of went back in time and shot it as a motion control miniature, which is something that's not done very much anymore. So that was that was really great and really useful. Not it wasn't just an exercise in sort of nerdy nostalgia techniques that some of us had used earlier in our careers. It, it really was useful because the spaceships that we're familiar with in Star Wars, like the Millennium Falcon or X Wings, things like that, we can build those in CG and we know how to make them look just like the models. Partly because of that exercise we did on Rogue One, but also just just generally we've we've seen them enough on screen that we know how to light them to make them and texture them and so forth to make them really feel like the, the miniatures that we're familiar with from original trilogy. But with the Razor Crest, it had a finish that was unlike any other ship we've seen in Star Wars. It's not as shiny and mirror-like as Padme's. It's, it's not matte and uh, finish like the Star Destroyers or X-Wings or Millennium Falcon from original trilogy. So it was certainly useful to build a model and light it just to see how it reacts to light um, to inform the textures and lighting of our CG version. But I think it was even really yielded a lot of uh, great creative discoveries and, and served as a great style guide to go all the way to the extent of putting it in a motion control rig and shooting it that way yeah. um, rather than just shooting stills of it to, to use as, as lighting information. For me, that was tremendously fun, and, and for John Knoll. <laughs> I can I think. imagine. So was it a case of dusting off the old motion control rig and getting it all up and running again, or was it a brand-new kit? A brand-new. John took it upon himself to design... Because we don't have, aside from a few museum pieces that, that are on display here and there around the company, we don't really have a fully functioning motion control setup here. So we, John designed one, he designed it in the computer first, and he sourced a bunch of parts that could be bought. And then he's got a pretty well set up machine shop at his home. And, and so anything he couldn't buy outright, he machined himself and built. And then he wrote his own software to run it. Wow. <laughs> That's, that's John for you. He's uh, He's got skills of many different kinds. He's a very yeah. smart guy. And, and I think it was probably just super fun for him because he started out, uh, you know, operating motion control rigs of different kinds at ILM. And um, and I did as well, but not at ILM, at, at Will Vinton Studios. But, you know, I it was part of my background, too. And we just have that in our in our blood. And so it was super fun. We we had uh, a really good time doing it. And so I, because he had built the rig in the computer first to kind of design it, I was able to take that geometry, the, that computer model, and put it in Maya and rig it. And so then I would basically animate any shots that were going to be motion control. I would design them, but I would design them using the motion control rig in Maya rather than just animating the ship wherever. And that way I could ensure that not only was, was it something that the rig was capable of shooting, that was, of course, the most important thing, but also it enforces a kind of style on you when you do that. And that was part of this whole exercise was to get at something that felt like it respected the limitations of the equipment that was being used, you know, back on the original trilogy. Yeah. Now, our rig was simpler than theirs, but uh, it could do many of the things that the Dykes Reflex could do. And it, and it served our purposes and, um, and it, it enforced many of the same kinds of style decisions. So you have to imagine we had about 40 feet of track running diagonally across our motion capture stage. And then mounted on that track was a little carriage that would travel up and down the track. And on that was a pan and tilt head. 
And then separate from that was a model support, a model pylon, if you will. And it had several degrees of access. So you'd mount the razor crest on that model mover and it couldn't travel anywhere. It wasn't on a track, but it could move pitch, yaw and roll. Basically, the three rotational axes, it could do those three things. And so any travel toward and away from camera was done by moving the camera toward or away from the model along its track and then moving the ship around the frame. Um, usually we had to do with panning and tilting the camera um, rather than, say, moving the camera up or down. And then the, the ship itself could roll. And you, know, and you could get a surprising amount of sort of effects from that. You know, and, you can, and, then, and then the ship could be mounted on any all six sides, top, bottom, front, back, left, right, uh, had mounting points. So between, you know, so you had quite a bit of flexibility on the relationship of the model to the camera. And um, you come up with all kinds of different shots that way. And so I would, you know, animate it in the computer and, and figure out which way the model needed to be mounted and what lens we're using on our little uh, Canon uh, Mark III and figure it out that way. And then it would go, those curves from Maya would go off to her motion control rig and drive the, the actual physical rig, drive, drive the camera down the track as it was photographing the model. And it was super great. There's a whole aesthetic to the original Star Wars miniature shots. And yeah. I would say... Some of that comes from the limitations or, or you know, what have you, of the, of the equipment at the time. In other words, by limitations, I just mean like, you know, they also had, for instance, had about around 40 feet of track and they had a certain set of lenses and they were shooting on VistaVision. And, um, and their Falcon model in the first film was quite large. It was about five feet long. They built smaller models for Empire and, you know, upgraded their equipment and their processes. So, you know, the movement of the Falcon in, in Empire, of course, is much more free and balletic, if you will, uh, in the asteroid chase, et cetera, than, than a lot of the shots in the first film. But we really kind of wanted to mostly make it feel like the first film, but, uh, but it really any of the original trilogy. And so they only had about 40 feet of track. So, for instance, you don't see a lot of shots, almost none, in fact, in the original trilogy of the Falcon coming from way far away and whooshing past camera with the camera panning with it, whip panning with it, and then seeing it fly far away from us you, you kind of have shots of it coming at us and going over or under past camera and coming from behind us and, and flying away from us as pairs of shots you really don't have single whip pan shots there's some shots almost like that in the in the trench toward the end of episode four with some tie fighters but even there they're moving quite slowly relative to camera and they they barely gain on us over the course of the shot some of the style of the shots comes from that what their machine could physically do their their equipment but I think most of the style of the shots has to do with the fact that George was, you know, had famously used in lieu of previs, which really wasn't a thing then, footage from, you know, movies with famous aerial battle yeah. footage, Battle of Britain and um, Dam Busters, uh, the most notable examples. And those films featured some stage and miniature work, but they also had a lot of good, especially Battle of Britain, really good actual air-to-air photography, you know, real planes photographed from other real planes. And when you do that, typically what you're doing is you're on a long lens and you're trying to chase this airplane across the sky. And so the aircraft doesn't really move a lot through frame, but the, the cloud, the sky is, is whooshing past in the background because you're sort of tracking it across a big swath of sky and trying to stay framed on it. And that aesthetic, I think, drove this, the shots in Star Wars more than anything else. Because if you look at any individual shot, typically the ships aren't moving that fast through frame they're not whooshing past or coming at us at great neck speed 
but the stars are panning behind the ship in, a, in an opposing direction in a way that gives the shot a great feeling of dynamism and it makes you feel like you're shooting it on a long lens and sort of tracking it across space as it moves at high speed. And that aesthetic, in a nutshell, I think gives those shots the feeling that they have more than almost anything else. And and the stars are disconnected from the movement of the foreground ship in a way that isn't strictly realistic, but it evokes a certain type of photography that's very exciting. And as well, I think, particularly once they got into the space battle at the end of New Hope, there were other things going on there with the sort of process they had. For instance, you know, they had lots and lots of shots to do and kind of an unprecedented number of, of optical effect shots. And so one of the things they did to speed that up or help with that was rather than shooting as a bespoke, unique starfield motion for every single shot, for many shots, they were able to draw from a library that they created ahead of time. So you had, you know, stars moving from lower left to upper right, lower right to upper left, and, you know, south to north movement, and the op- north to south, and, and panning left to right and right to left, and, and probably other variations as well. But, you know, they could look at a shot and say, okay, this will look good with a, with a right to left a diagonal so we'll um we'll put that behind this this uh, tie fighter element and because of that as well that that i think added slightly to the kind of disconnect but it's a great disconnect it's it adds a, a weird kind of unplanned for level of dynamism to the shots that's just super unique a big deep dive into all that um was super fun for me because i kind of started that on rogue although in rogue i have to say as much as we wanted the ships to feel like the miniature ships in terms of the way we lit them and, and rendered them. Yeah. Um, the shot design is pretty modern. You know, we, we did things that you sort of expect from modern science fiction films in terms of how the camera travels with the ships and the sort of lensing and everything. We didn't go out of our way to make those shots really feel like original trilogy shots. We wanted them to feel modern, but look like sort of like what your mind remembers. Hello, I'm Warwick Davis and you're listening to Fanthatracks. On Mando, the goal was really to try and make these shots feel as much like original trilogy shots as as we could, you know, without going to what I think would be sort of silly lengths, which is like, well, we'll put in mat lines and we'll put in, you know, misregister things slightly like we don't want to go there. We want them to feel credible and we want you to believe in the world that you're seeing. But we did want that feel. We did allow ourselves to do whip pan shots because they're dynamic and fun and they show off the razor crest. So that was one license we gave ourselves is you, you do have we do have shots of the razor crest coming at us from a, a distance and then we pan with it. And we were able to do that even with our miniature razor crest because uh, it was quite a small model, only about two feet long. So we could do shots like that. Mark Hamill made a really good point recently in an interview when he said how much he enjoys The Mandalorian and said that the, the show to a degree has an advantage over the films because it's so much more focused on the characters. And he was really digging that. Is that one of the provisos that you've got? And that we know ILM could blow our socks off and, and make visually incredible stuff. But is the focus very much on Mando and the child and the characters and that the effects just want to bed you into the world? Is that kind of part of the, the structure of it? Absolutely. Pretty much exactly as you've said. But also with the, I'd also say with the slight John, I'll come back to John Favreau, because I think this goes largely back to him and Dave. I think they're both very concerned about that. But also John, John's an interesting director in that he, I noticed this when I first worked with him on the, on the first Iron Man. Animators and previous artists and, and folks like that are generally very keen to produce effect shots that are, or design effect shots that are cool, right? Really cool and awesome and and give you the feels, the you know, in a sort of... <laughs> uh, 
big action sci-fi movie way because we've all been steeped in those and we kind of know what we feel like is awesome and cool and all that. And John frequently shies away from that. He only wants to use that when it is absolutely story relevant. You know what I mean? He never wants anything that's cool just because it's cool. And then like a, a much more sort of ordinary example of that is when we're doing sky replacement, you know, frequently, uh, if we're doing a whole environment around the characters that, that didn't exist and it's all CG, you know, we, we have to discuss at some point what's going on in the sky. And, you know, the map painters, environment artists frequently want to put in gorgeous looking skies or at least just really nice looking clouds and things. And John, it, you know, his mantra is, no, don't do that. Uh, if I want a beautiful sky, it's got to be for a, a moment, you know, a reason in the in the emotional yeah. you know narrative of the of the scene or the or the episode um because normally if you're just out shooting stuff outside you don't get gorgeous skies like that yeah. yes you can send a second unit out to to wait around all day or all week to get those great shots because maybe you've got a plan for them in your film but just ordinarily shooting a scene where people are talking and doing things or there's action or whatever that's outside you're not going to get those amazing cumulonimbus puffy cloud or whatever it is. Yeah. So when people put those in the background of, of shots that are otherwise a, a kind of ordinary moment of characters getting from A to B, you know, John is just like, no, no, take that out. You know, I want to give me a boring sky there. <laughs> and kind of that way with the visual effects. It's not that he wants boring, but he wants to make sure that cool and awesome isn't getting out in front of serving the narrative tone and, and realism and believability. Those things are much more important to him that's a whole aesthetic for him and, and that drives it as well. But I think, you know, the main thing is, as you said, is putting the characters front and center, the, the story front and center and letting everything else serve that, you know, is always, you know, what we hope to do. We succeed to greater and lesser degree. There are times when I, I try hard to talk John into something that, <laughs> that I think is really cool um, that, you know, he may be backing away from. Uh, I, I try. <laughs> no, it's a, and, good po- it's a good point because what you've just said really sort of fits the, the vibe that I get from the show. You mentioned the sunsets. That just feels like a George thing because the only big, crazy, great sunset I can think of in Phantom Menace, for example, is when Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon have the conversation on the balcony and it felt like a moment. So that yeah. kind of very much sort of fits with that. But also... In, in Star Wars, especially in A New Hope, it's the quiet moments. It's Luke and Owen and Baru having breakfast. It's in the garage with his skyhopper and just the organic, natural sounds, 3PO's gears turning and the, the sound of the oil bath. And just you feel like you're in the world, and Mando feels yeah. like you're in the world. Yeah, I'm with you. And i got to tell you, the being on the sets has been super fun because the craft there has been off the charts really great, and props and costumes and everybody's really done an amazing job. And so it's been a super fun show to just spend time on set because of all the the cool stuff everyone's building. And it's, you know, between the volume where we're shooting, where you're wrapped around, you know, amazing imagery or just the practical, the regular practical indoor outdoor sets, they're nicely immersive and every day is sort of exciting (laughs) when I get to be on set. It's, it's, um, it's super fun in a way that, you know, non-Star Wars films aren't. I mean, they, they, I'm almost always excited to be on set, but there's something about these Star Wars projects that's just extra fun because there's quite often along the way there'll be some exciting thing that's happening that like oh have you did you guys see the Blurg uh, motion base <laughs> no you gotta go you gotta go check that out yeah. You're testing it out right now you know go go on stage four and so there's always something cool like that to to see and check out or uh, you know climb inside the Razor Crest cockpit and just sit there for a moment have my own 
as you say, quiet little moment, Star Wars moment. Yeah. There's not a lot of quiet moments uh, during shooting, but every now and then during the lunch break, you can you can steal one. <laughs> Has the Mandalorian shown then that the demarcation line between movie quality and TV quality is pretty much gone now? I hope so. I mean, that's certainly our goal. I, it's funny because going into this, of course, there were naturally discussions about budget and schedule and so forth as you'd have on any project. And frankly, I'd say one of the very biggest challenges of this show is the volume of work. You know, a big summer tentpole film nowadays generally has around 2,000 visual effects shots, sometimes as many as, you know, 2,500 or whatever. But that's a big Marvel Avengers type of film, just chock full of visual effects shots. A film like that gets done in, in around a year, a year and a half, what have you, depending on when a visual effects facility is brought onto the project and how many shots they have and all that. We're doing, you know, around 4,000 shots a season for Mandalorian, but we're doing them in around the same amount of time that we do a feature. So so we're kind of doing twice as many shots. So I'd say that's the biggest challenge. And so anyway, so going into this, you know, we had conversations about keeping costs down this, that, because we've got all these shots to do and our budget's only so big and it's television, it's not feature. But in practical terms, I've not noticed any change in how we execute things, how the shots end up looking. You know, in other words, what gets on screen to me looks every bit as good as any other project I've ever worked on at ILM. Probably there are more cons- there's more consideration going into the projects and in prep and ahead of shooting and all that about what can be afforded and all that with in budgeting and so forth. But in terms of executing the work, yeah, there, there doesn't, <laughs> there hasn't been any change in, in like, well, this is for television. So we can, let's not make that last tweak. It'll be fine. And uh, no, every, every shot gets polished to the same degree, which is fun. I, I honestly, it would be a bummer if I, if we were put in a box where we had to uh, sort of lower our standards to get something on air I don't think anybody would enjoy that. And and frankly, I think, again, that's what's kept a live action Star Wars series from happening over all these years is that nobody wanted to do that. Nobody wanted to have it look less than what people think of as Star Wars, you know, because certainly you could make a much less expensive Star Wars TV show. But you would have to have to cut out a lot of the environments and fantastical places. And it would be more more like very much beloved, but uh, much more limited 70s and 80s era sci-fi shows where yeah. a lot of the spaceship shots get repeated every episode because they only they kind of shot a bunch up front for the pilot or whatever and then they've just sort of banked those and they use the same establishing shots of for instance the galactica uh, over and over again because they can't really afford to shoot bespoke visual effect shots every episode maybe a few but not many I think we're in a blessedly new era because that's the stuff I grew up on. I grew up on sort of expecting a science fiction show to have pretty visible limitations on screen and just, yeah. you know, and still cherishing it, you know, still loving it. Um, and if and if a show had awesome design and, and, of course, good writing and all that, all that could be overlooked. Star Trek, the original series, for instance, for me um, uh, uh, or for others, you know, the later series, but for original series or even Space 1999. You know, the Eagle, for me, is one of the greatest ship designs of all time. I just absolutely adore the Eagle and just generally the design aesthetic of Space 1999 particularly. So now we we have not only more firepower, but we've got sort of the the smarts and the technology to allow us to have a a much fuller vision of of a science fiction show. 
but be efficient enough to get it done on whatever budget, I guess, has been agreed to. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a joy, really. It's great. It's great to have both. It's a golden age of television. You know, you look at everything from, you know, Game of Thrones, the amazing work on that show to, to Mandalorian to Westworld. You know, the visual effects stuff is just really accelerated in that in the streaming realm. We expect to be doing lots of not just TV series, but streaming films. And, uh, you know, I think that's going to be a big part of our our business going forward as a visual effects company. Hi, this is Vanessa Marshall, and you're listening to Fanta Tracks. Now that visually, at least, there's pretty much parity, how is a movie going to stand out against a high-quality eight-part series like Mandalorian or whatever else we've got down the horizon? How, how can a movie now make you go, I'm going to lay down my you know, 20 bucks or whatever for a ticket and popcorn and what, what's the difference now? I mean, I think one of the things is they can be bigger in scope. I think the sequel films have remained larger in scope than the way Mandalorian feels. And, and again, that's partly by design. John doesn't want to go. He's not trying to go head to head with the big chapter films. They're their own thing. And he wants to have a different kind of feeling because one of the questions that confronts us regularly um, with visual effects is how do we get the audience to go? Wow. Again, because uh, it used to be, if you go back to 1993, whenever Jurassic Park came out, you know, Jurassic Park is a terrifically crafted film, obviously, um, Spielberg's the master. But but also in terms of visual effects, it was enough to have a realistic, freestanding, full head to toe T-Rex moving around in a way that we'd never seen before to make people go, holy crap, I don't even understand what I'm looking at. How is that possible? Now it's very hard to get that reaction from people because they all have a little file folder in their brains that says um, it was done in a computer. They don't have to have any more details than that. When they see something that's impossible, no matter how realistically it's depicted, rather than going, how can this possibly be? They kind of just go, well, they do that in a computer, which is not a great reaction. So how do you get people to go? That's amazing. I don't this is confusing my senses. I don't understand what I'm saying. Well, I think the onus is back where it belongs on the writer and and the director to imagine scenes and places and and events that make people have that sense of wonder and and feeling of wonder. So in that way, I think that a small budget film can evoke that a big budget, massive sci-fi like one of the sequel films can do that. Hopefully our, our humble little Mandalorian TV show can do that. So to me, that's how you differentiate things. It's got to stem from the ideas, not from the budget or the scope or the polish of the visual effects. I think it comes from the ideas beneath them. And, you know, this is not news. Everyone's been sure. saying this forever that great visual effects can't save a poorly written film. In fact, they can only slightly harm a well-written film. I always say visual effects are like superpowers for directors. They can be used for good or evil. Great power comes and great responsibility and all that. I didn't I, I That was a bit of a rambling answer, but I, I just think for films to differentiate themselves going forward from what people are seeing on a daily basis on their televisions, I mean, maybe there is no difference. You know, there's been an argument for a long time about, should we call this a TV show or a movie? Does it matter? I'm not 100% sure it matters. I'll, I'll tell you what does matter to me, and this is sort of relevant to our current circumstances with shelter in place and all this. I love the movie-going experience. I grew up going to movie theaters. I love movie theaters. And I know a lot of people, friends of mine, who grumble about, oh, I hate going to see movies in the theaters now. But people are loud, and they take their phones out, and their kids make noise, and they chew their popcorn and all that. And, and believe me, I'm a person who, at various times in the past, has been – 
very annoyed with rude moviegoers and uh, and and that and I've been that guy, you know, the really sort of uptight person about my moviegoing experience. But I still love it. I still love sitting in a dark theater with a bunch of strangers, especially in comedies and horror films, particularly in those two genres. Uh, there's just nothing like it. And it's a communal art experience like no other. And I, I love it and I value it. So for me, honestly, and that's not even in the hands of filmmakers, but for me, that's that's the biggest thing that divides the two for me is the viewing experience. Um, and I sure hope that when we come out of the other side of this pandemic that theater chains are going to be able to reopen and we're going to have access to movies in theaters and not just on our televisions. I watch a lot of, you know, even before this, I watched a lot of movies, probably most of the movies I watch are on my television, but I still absolutely adore getting out to the theater to see a movie, especially a movie I'm excited about. Like I can't wait to see Tenet, the new Chris Nolan film. And, uh, and I want to see that in a theater on as big a screen as I possibly can, you know, hopefully that's, that's all going to, come back for us there's a handful of directors out there that you know i see their work and i think god geez i'd like to work on one of those well he's one of them uh spike jones is, is another one fincher i think it'd be great to work on a fincher film there's a bunch of bunch of directors cameron i've never worked on a jim cameron film i'd love to work on one of his films yeah. but uh, david fincher is an xilm guy isn't he yeah he was a camera operator on jedi yeah i don't know how long his tenure was like i don't know from what year to what year but yeah yeah, super young. He was like 18 then or 19. Super young. Yeah. I've seen uh, various folks from ILM over the years have, you know, collected photos and sort of home movies around the studio. And I've seen some some video of him, the studio back then. And he just looks like a kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a very talented kid. And I get the impression, too, that people knew then that he was going places. Yeah. That, that uh, he was extraordinarily talented. Season one of Mandalorian, if there's a moment you could pick, be it a character moment or a moment where all the stars aligned and you go, yep, that nailed it. Could you pick a moment? I mean, there are a bunch of things I are really pleased with how they turned out. But if I had to pick one or two, you know, certainly the Mudhorn sequence, it was a big complicated sequence. It's a difficult creature to do. It had the benefit of being a creature that for which there's good real world reference, like, mm. you know, rhinoceroses and things. But that also makes it harder because... We're familiar with how a creature like that ought to move. So if we don't do it right, people kind of sense that. But it was, you know, woolly and, you know, hair is something we've been doing in CG for a while now, but it never seems to get a lot easier. And it wasn't just furry. It was furry with all different kinds of mud, wet mud, dried caked mud, everything else. It gets singed at one point. There's all this mud interaction splash and getting its sort of final moments right. And the baby using the force, spoilers, and... um <laughs> And all those uh, other elements that was a, just a tough sequence to get right. And I'm really with ha- happy with how it turned out. Um, but I'd say the other thing I think was for me was uh, IG-11. Yeah. A, a great character. Lots of fun to figure out how to move it. And yeah, I'm just tickled with how, how it turned out as well. Really great character. And with a great arc over the course of the series as yeah. well. So doing the motion control Razor Crest was awesome and fun. And I'm really happy with the results. And the blurgs turned out great, and uh, our little pit droids. Like, pretty happy with the. <laughs> with this. We got to do an ATST. That's a machine yeah. I especially love, and so getting a chance to do one of those was was really fun. And and also, you know, on, on visual effects on films, there's one director, but um, on a series of Mandalorian, there there can be a bunch. So getting to work with you know Bryce and Deb and Dave, Rick, 
you know, was super, super great. And Taika as well. And that's really fun. I never worked on a TV series before. So getting to getting to know sort of all of them, at least a little bit and, and work with them was, um, was super great. That, that was uh, something I hadn't thought about before jumping into the show. And then I was like, oh, wow, because as I, I think I mentioned earlier, like one of my favorite things on a project is getting to know the director. And here I get to I get to meet a, a whole bunch and kind of get a little learn a little bit from each of them. So, so it's great. Without giving anything away, season two, should we be excited? Not at all. Uh, we've <laughs> dialed it way back. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. should be excited. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be absolutely awesome. I don't think I don't think that's a spoiler. I think I can. I can say that without fear of losing my job. Season two is <laughs> going to be amazing. <laughs> That's fantastic. Brilliant. Hal, thanks so much for your time. You bet. It's been great to chat, and we'll, we'll do it again sometime down the road. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Huge thanks once again to Hal for taking the time to be a part of the show. You can catch more audio from Hal and our conversation with him on the next two episodes of Making Tracks. Next episode's out on Tuesday and the following episode a week later. If you want to be a part of the action and stay updated on all the latest Star Wars news, visit Fantatracks.com or check out the Fantatracks app through the App Store to follow us on your mobile device. You can reach out to us and send in your listeners' questions by emailing radio at Fantatracks.com. Comment, like and share on any of our social media feeds at Fantatracks and be sure to subscribe, leave a review, preferably a five-star one, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or your podcatcher or smart speaker of choice thank you again and we'll see you on the next studio episode of making tracks coming up next on fanta tracks radio it's another episode of making tracks